Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And if you enjoy the show, do leave us a review on your podcast app. Coming up on the show today, Jacob Sol, author of the new book, Free Market, The History of an Idea. Uh, Jake, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Congratulations on the book. And as you say at the beginning, in the United States, the free market is perhaps the most familiar of economic bywords. Uh, so what does it actually mean? Well, that's a really good question, isn't it? Um, I, I'm actually in a discussion on a social media blog right now about that. Someone said, nothing works better than a free market. And I don't, I still don't completely know what that means. But there is an idea that comes out of the 19th century that has deep roots in, in older history. That's the idea of general equilibrium. And that just means that if you let supply and demand operate on their own, the economy will just work and produce wealth. And you should have no other input more or less into that. Maybe a minor dose of monetary theory, according to Milton Friedman, but that's it. And so it's the idea that the economy just sort of functions like a machine in a perfect manner, producing wealth if left alone. And again, those are all weighted terms that one has to discuss. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. I mean, it's, it's another point that you make early on that, that, that this term does get thrown around a lot in a not very specific way. And that, uh, as, as, as you point out, the term's been a staple of the nation's political discourse, you say, used both to praise and to criticize policy. Is, is it one of those things that kind of uh, people will use to basically back up what they want to say anyway? Absolutely. I also think it's, I mean, I add to what you've said, it's a, it's a kind of Rorschach test in the sense that if you say free market to someone, they will have a strong reaction and it might, they might not be thinking what you are thinking. So for example, I got in a discussion on LinkedIn with someone who was complaining that only free markets work. And, and he was complaining as if he was in a situation without a free market and he lives in New Zealand. And I said, do you consider New Zealand a free market economy? And he started kind of hedging. And I said, well, is Western Europe a free market? And then it sort of goes on and he sort of struggled with it. So I think many people have these kinds of very personalized ideas of what a free market is, or maybe idealized or even demonized. Yeah, I mean, you, you say we have an, an idea of what that is. Um, I think one of the, the nice things about the book is that, yes, we tend to think of the likes of Keynes and Friedman and Hayek uh, arguing about these kind of questions. But uh, really, the, the point of the book, uh, it seems to me, is to show that people have been mulling over these questions for a couple of thousand years. In fact, you take us all the way back to Cicero. Yes, I mean, the idea is, is how do we get, how do we create wealth in a way that's positive or how do we create wealth at all? And what's so interesting to me, first of all, is that no one really wrote this book before or saw the Cicero connection, which I find to be amazing because from 1845 backwards, everyone who you would think of as a free market thinker or as an economist was discussing Cicero. That's because Cicero on, on ends and on duties, these two major moral works that he writes, in both cases, he discusses the idea of an ideal exchange between aristocratic male friends who exchange in a disinterested way and quote, out of love, which means friendship. And if people do that, he says, it will just create wealth. There'll be a happy market. 
And, and so this is a kind of remarkable model that if someone sort of follows a moral recipe of exchange, everything will just work out. And that's a kind of amazing promise, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's the way I see it. But, but, but he's also, uh, from reading the book, he, he's also skeptical about commerce and, and merchants and, and actually fears that they may rip up, destroy the very fabric of the republic itself. Well, so this is, in fact, the oldest trope in free market thought. It's, it's older than Friedman and, and, and Hayek and Keynes. It, it's the idea that you have to have these moral, disinterested men of property who believe in farming. And their exchange should be based around the good management of agriculture because nature has its own system which produces wealth. And if you can figure out how to handle it, and that's both farm management, but also by being a very moral, stoic person, then you can unlock wealth. And so the first modern free market thinkers were all agrarians, and that includes Adam Smith, who believed that positive economic or positive wealth creation came primarily from agriculture. And that in fact, Smith felt much like Cicero, that merchants were dangerous, companies were dangerous, and that it led people away from the virtue of farming and, and stoic morals. Yeah, we'll come on to Smith a bit later. Um, but of these early thinkers, a lot of the book is about Christianity and the growth of the church. And 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 you talk about contradictions and battles of battle of ideas and and we see it right there that friction between poverty and wealth uh, is is here including as as you point out even in the the teachings of Jesus itself there seems to be a a contradiction along those lines. Well, I mean, again, these are the problems that go back to Saint Matthew because at one level Matthew is the guy who says, you know, you have to be a good steward of wealth. You know, the parable of the talents, you have to invest well. He's also the guy that says, who repeats the old Hebrew adage that it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel through the eye of a needle, which is apparently an ancient, ancient saying that goes way, way, way back, you know, into Judaism and possibly other early religions. So there is that tension, but in early Christianity, there really is a sense that individual wealth is bad. And it, it really is, Christianity begins as an ascetic religion. In fact, it begins in many ways as a response, not only to Roman wealth, but Roman wealth inequality. And that is the great focus in, you know, Judeo-Christian tradition um, around the, the virtue of poverty. And that is an enormous struggle within Christianity. And one of the things I did find in the book is that Christianity sees holiness in poverty and sees a good exchange as not giving money away to make money per se, although there are certain conditions in which that's okay, but really to give money to the poor and to the church in exchange for salvation in what is a sort of holy work of business. That only really changes in the late 13th and truly in the 1400s. And that I find absolutely amazing. And certainly Martin Luther will have something to say about that too. Um, I mean, it, 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 again, these contradictions just keep piling up uh, in the book that, you know, I think most of us, when we think of free market, we have that idea of the government or the state getting out of the way. Um, it's, it's kind of very often a, a phrase that you'll hear used. But, but as you make clear, the way in which the word was used in the ancient and the, and the medieval world 
it might almost mean the opposite, how the state could sponsor trade uh, in order to enrich itself, uh, primarily through the kind of greater tax take that will come with it. Right. I mean, one of the things that I think is really important to see in this history is that, first of all, when the Roman Empire falls, that's really the sort of big event <laughs> in Western history. Uh, it leaves Western Europe, which was phenomenally wealthy, incredibly poor. And at that point, economics will all be around stewardship. You have to manage the small amount of stuff that you have. And a lot of economic thought will sort of go uh, around that. As um, And for that, you're going to need a state. And so the state is sort of president all these economic ideas really until even the, the, the laissez-faire thinkers of the 18th century believed that you needed an absolute monarch to make sure the state oversaw the market to keep it free in a very strong way. I mean, that's a sort of absolute, uh, an enlightened absolute monarch. Um, we really start getting complaints about the state only when we get relatively stable states. Adam Smith both praises states and, and criticizes them. But the real critiques of the state sort of emerge, I would say, in the, in, in the 20th century. And that's really interesting that, in fact, people's economic thinkers, and I'm talking the leading thinkers, these are both builders of markets and economies and of states themselves, saw the state in relatively positive and necessary terms. And then in the modern age, once we have these huge states, then it becomes possible to say, hey, we need less state or we don't want a state at all. Um, that's a historical sort of historically specific concept. It's not a, I don't, it's not a universal idea. Yeah. And I suppose in that, in that earlier period, some of the state intervention was certainly by uh, modern standards, quite a light touch that, but it could have spectacular results that, I mean, perhaps what we might call a, a public private partnership, for example, like the East India company uh, and the, the way in which it contributed to building the British empire which of course will go on to be the biggest and the richest in the world. Right. I mean, well, so that's, you, you, you lead back to one of the first works, um, by, um, Thomas Munn. Uh, he's one of the first authors in English to use the term free market. And his book is about how the state will need to help the East India company and protect it in order to create more trade. And the idea is that if you can increase your levels of trade, and the circulation of currency, you can create more wealth. That's a market idea, except it's a market idea in which the state plays a huge role. And by the way, the state played a huge role and was at least successful in creating this mega world company and world empire. I mean, we can be for or against that, but the success of it as a sort of idea that people wanted to create is sort of undeniable. So it's really interesting to see that you know, one of the two first people or first few people in English history to use the term free trade used it with the idea that, yes, this is going to happen as a state partnership with a giant monopoly company, which, by the way, was successful. Yeah. And these these moral aspects are always interesting. I mean, you you talked about Adam Smith earlier in the in the interview and I mean, I suppose he is the name most often associated as the father uh, of ideas around the free market. but. But he's a complicated writer, isn't he? And we, we sometimes forget the, the moral aspects of his work, uh, which it really is highly developed. He, he, his is not a, an unbridled uh, trade or capitalism. No. I mean, first of all, remember, the Wealth of Nations is around 1,200 
very thick, often self-contradictory pages. And I try and show how he says these things that sound like modern free market thought. And then he says these things that sound quite opposed to modern free market thought. It's because he's writing in a very particular context. He's writing in late 18th century Scotland. Um, it's, it was called the age of oligarchy that was, that the Britain was run by these wealthy landowners and trade was emerging, imperial trade was emerging. And Smith sort of comes, tries to come to terms with this. But most of all, Smith is a professor of Ciceronian neo-Stoic morals. And he really tries to take Cicero's old ideas and put them into the context of this new moment of both empire or empire trade and agrarian oligarchy tries to kind of fit them all together. It's not clear it totally works. And that's why you really need a lot of context to read Smith. But it's also very interesting because he is not really saying what modern people think he's saying, which is typical of works that are several hundred years old. And very often, even even in the questions which I've asked so far, we we tend to think of free market as an Anglo-American idea. We've talked about the the East India Company, the British Empire. We've talked about Smith. Um, you know, we've talked about the likes of Friedman and 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 uh, Hayek and and so on and Keynes, who are either British or American or, or kind of operating within that intellectual sphere. But but you show that actually one of the the principal ideas in in free market thought actually comes from France with uh, Jean Baptiste uh, Colbert, the the minister of Louis the Fourteenth. Right. Well, there's this huge tradition, um, and it's really really important. It it, it starts in in part with a number of thinkers at the beginning of the 17th century who are trying to build economies, in particular those English authors I mentioned in the book, uh, Edward Misseldon and Thomas Munn, they're talking about free markets as a partnership with the state. Today, we would call that development economic. Both England and France are trying to compete with Holland, which is the superpower at the time. It's the super empire. It's the super commercial country. Both are trying to emulate Holland to build markets and companies and trade. Um, and what happens is, is someone like Colbert, who is still seen as the antithesis of a free market figure, the Economist magazine several times a year, at least until recently, would write a sort of article against some state that they felt was interfering too much in their economy and say that this is a modern Colbert. Well, it turns out that no one had really read through Colbert's writings in any systematic way. And I spent I've spent more than 16 years in Colbert's archives, reading and reading thousands and thousands of pages over and over again. And I'm going to stop after this book <laughs> because it's become a bit too much. But the thing is, is that I, I learned a lot. And one of the things I saw is that Colbert said, look, the ideal is to have what he called liberty of commerce, that you just trade freely without the state involved, without a lot of rules. But for that, you need symmetry. You, he said, France can't just trade with Holland. Holland, he said, has taken over Eastern France. They're taking all the natural resources. Merchants are leaving. Currency is leaving. We can't compete with these guys unless we actually close things off, start building industries. In fact, in paying Dutch people to come build stuff here, we just don't actually have the industrial base or the know-how. He's very clear on this. Or even the moral fiber. He thinks that French merchants are lazy and dishonest. And so he thinks that the state has to build trust and confidence, a brand, industries, and then create a sort of level of parity, which can then be sort of used through fair trade treaties. 
So this is a really sophisticated vision of what you need to get to free trade. And in fact, this will be the model used by early America under Hamilton. It's the model that Germany will use. It's the model that Japan will use. And in a funny modern way, it's the model that until I would say seven years ago, or even, you know, more recently, China used to great effect too in massive wealth creation. Yeah, and, and I think listeners will already be getting a, a sense of the chronological span of of the book and the 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 breadth of the of the ideas that you're looking at. But that's also true in terms of the uh, the width of what you do too. You mentioned the archives there, uh, and a lot of the book is archival. But you're not just looking at economics; you're looking in books and archives dealing with morals and natural sciences, religion, literature, and politics. You. You list all the kind of the, the different areas. It, that seems to me to be the uh, part of the key to what you're actually trying to do here. I mean, one of the things that happened was I, you know, I, I was not only writing economic history, but I was involved with some, some sort of economic politics. And one of the things that sort of startled me is when I would go back and look at these histories, they would sort of just take works that, that were self-declared works of economics that's actually why they misread Colbert. He never published an economic treatise. He published some laws and actually he published, he helped publish the most important business manual of the early modern period. It will become the most important business manual in Britain. And so I thought, you know, Colbert's not a philosopher. He's a state minister. And yet what he did was remarkably influential. You won't find him in those books. And there are lots and lots of figures like that. You won't find Cicero, you won't find St. Augustine, and you won't find a number of these sort of state figures or literary figures in a lot of these histories. I felt that if I could bring them all together, which took me eight years, and I have to say, it was so hard that, you know, it was really a challenging project, and I'm not sure I can do anything like this again. Once you take the time to do that, and I think that's what's necessary to understand a complex idea, then you get this fuller, richer picture. And that's, I think, one of the points of the book. If we want to understand things, there's no easy read. There's no easy job. It's really hard to do. And I try to show that in the book, what it takes to understand an idea like free market thought. You don't have to agree with all of my conclusions by any means, but, the, but you will see the work that I did to do it, I hope, is a model for how we approach complex ideas. And that's one of the points I'm making. I feel like we're looking for these easy responses. I don't think there are easy responses. What about the American system? I guess we think of someone like Hamilton, who's central to creating the kind of controlling markets and the economy and so on in the founding of the United States as being quite dirigiste in the way that he thinks of the state. Given that he's the founder who plays the biggest role in establishing that system, I mean, how important is the free market idea to him, I wonder? And then how does the free market idea become so central in later American thinking? Well, first, I regret something. I was rereading Hamilton to give a talk about the book. And I realized that I had sort of read Hamilton over and over again. And when I was writing the book, I kind of left out some of my most important notes, which, again, this is, you know, none of these works are perfect. And as I read through my notes, I said, you know, I need to go back and reread Hamilton again. We clearly, you know, just didn't put everything in there that I should have. And as I reread Hamilton, I am actually convinced that Hamilton's project um, 
on manufacturers from 1791 might very well be a response to Smith's Wealth of Nations. He talks over and over again about how agriculture does not create enough value to, to run an economy and that it must be done on industry. And, and he says, look, we don't have the industry to do this. And if we open ourselves up to the foreign products of, of Britain and, and countries like France, we'll never create any industry because they'll wipe us out. But what's so amazing about Hamilton is he was not a complete dirigist. He said, look, what we need is some kind of tariff on foreign goods. We can't ban them all together. There will be shortages. I mean, the guy was really smart. So he said, we need a sort of a, like a 2% tariff. And then we need to invest that very small tariff, but it's just enough to give us an edge back into sponsoring industry in the United States. And he said, I don't want to, you know, create a system in which we're blocking goods from coming into the United States. So the tariff has to be incredibly well thought out. So he really understood not only how to build a state or, an, or a market state, but sort of how carefully to use the government to do that so as not to actually stifle the market. So he was a really subtle thinker. And that's what I sort of found was these market builders like Hamilton are really thinking, I would say, in super pragmatic terms with a real understanding, for example, of, um, you know, supply and demand. He really had an idea of that. So, yeah, he's a very nuanced and brilliant thinker. And I, and I do think, um, I really regret not putting this in the book, that his book was in part a response to the wealth of nations. And let's just talk a, a little bit about contemporary uh, politics and, and economics. Uh, that a, a lot of um, writers have said that Bidenomics uh, is quite protectionist with its, uh, its American first uh, economic policy. President Trump uh, was not dissimilar. Do you, do you feel that for all the rhetoric that the, perhaps the free market philosophy has lost its appeal in reality in American politics today? I mean, I can't actually speak. I think this is where, you know, economics gets into soothsaying. What really is going to work? Well, I've read convincing uh, descriptions saying, look, more protectionism is going to be helpful. And then I've read convincing things saying, no, it's really not helpful. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I've seen both sides and I've been sort of convinced by both sides and I go back and forth. I do know that average American workers feel that the their, their job base was destroyed by free trade treaties. And I would, there, there are arguments about whether that's true. I tend to think it's partially true. And I've been in debates about this where, you know, the idea that sending manufacturing overseas was a, letting the market do its work. Um, there are arguments, look, there's different kinds of manufacturings. There are computer chips and potato chips. If you send potato chips overseas, it probably doesn't matter. But computer chips, when you do the manufacturing, you also do the development of the technology and that you need to keep on your home ground. That's actually how you get rich. That's one argument that I sort of, I think I agree with partially. I think it's very hard and complex. But I do think that um, in modern times, there, there has been this idea that you could not have a national industrial strategy and you can just let supply and demand do its work. Clearly, publics around the world no longer believe that. Whether I believe it or not, I mean, that's one question, but voters in America don't seem to believe it. They didn't believe it in Britain. Um, I'm not sure they believe it so much in France and, and other European countries either. So I think 
it's a time when you can't just walk into the room and say, let's get the state out of this. I don't think if you walk into the room and say, let's get the state out of your pocket and lower taxes, people are almost always happy about that. And that's, I think, also a very, you know, weighted and complex argument. The idea that that just we can have unfettered international trade and it's going to bring everyone wealth certainly hasn't worked out in a way that a majority of voters believes in in many Western industrialized countries. That we can say for sure. And 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 you and you do make the point in the book that you know it's amazing how often we forget that circumstances actually matter. That you know, and I think we've seen that recently. There have been some really harsh lessons that have been handed out all around volatile markets, making life hard for governments and independent central banks. Uh, the, the ex-Prime Minister uh, Liz Truss fat, fat in the UK found that out the hard way. I mean, what, what do you make of all that? So really interestingly, my, I was attacked by some critics of the book saying, look, free market economics doesn't really exist anyway. No one's really trying to do this. It's you know, we wish they were. So you're basically attacking a straw man. And then two weeks later, trust comes out with this idea that if you just lower taxes on the very, very rich, it will create a mass, massive growth in venture capital. And I read she and my former classmate at Cambridge, Quasi Quartang's um, Britain Unchained Manifesto, which was actually quite an incoherent and, you know, I would say off the wall piece of work where literally they say all wealth is created by buccaneer venture capitalists. Well, of course, that's just not the case. Silicon Valley, which was their ideal, was actually created by the CIA and the American national intelligence and, and military uh, uh, complexes that were investing to create radio, radio signal technology, pumping money into Stanford and into other institutions in California. And it was only once this massive state investment was made that then you could have American venture capital and world venture capital start moving into California and also do incredible things. And now California is this very intense pairing of a huge state investment into research mixed with a huge private investment in venture capital, which still seems to be paying remarkable dividends. Yeah, I didn't. And actually, towards the end of the book, you know, you do point out that there are so many different uh, examples and models of the American model, the Chinese model, uh, the Scandinavian social democratic model. You know, having done all of the research, thought about this for, as, as you say, kind of a couple of decades now, I mean, what do you think is the right balance for that kind of successful state intervention today? I mean, you've already given the answer. It, it's really specific to time and place and possibility. Um, it's really interesting. You know, in America, there's this argument, should we have Texas or California? One of the things we've seen is much of the technology that has gone to Texas has come from California. California has probably the most remarkable investment in higher education and research of probably any place in the world, public investment that's mixed with federal investment as well. That's going, I believe, to keep working. So California is, for example, is what I like to think about. I live here. It's still actually the richest place in the world. It's still in many ways, the most productive place in the world in, in terms of sort of creativity and technology. It also has high taxes. It has really bad wealth distribution. It has terrible infrastructure. I think it's, and you know, it suffers in a lot of ways. Um, and yet part of it still works. I'm convinced that that's this massive investment into research, the brain 
the brain economy is the economy that's really working. Um, so, you know, for example, would one prefer to live in a European social democracy? Oh yeah, honestly, wonderful services, wonderful streets to walk on, not, not having terrible homelessness and wealth inequality in your face all the time, good schools, um, easy access, healthcare. Sure. At the same time, this is interesting to have a good job in a place like California. It's so exciting here that I was thinking this this morning. I said, California has all these problems, but it's super exciting to live and work here. So I don't know. It's really hard to figure out what that model is, but we do have to be honest about it. And I feel like someone like Elon Musk has not been honest about it. He's received more than $16 billion in state loans and funding for his companies. Even Texas, I think, gave him, was it $500 million in subsidies to come to Texas? Uh, he is a kind of a sort of, I would say, a massive, a welfare baby of entrepreneurialism. He's a super entrepreneur, whether one likes him or not, who has had some remarkable success. But even today, Tesla's profits come from state rebates. They do not just come from pure profit. So when he says, I don't want the state, I don't want to pay taxes, that's incredibly disingenuous and in fact, misleading for young entrepreneurs. He was someone that figured out how to leverage the state, much like people did at the beginning of the 17th century. The, the projectors or entrepreneurs of the 17th century did the same thing. They leveraged their relationship with the state to create a kind of semi-private enterprise. And I do think that model keeps showing up. Musk looks more like the early 17th century than he does any kind of, I don't know, Greedman or Hayek-esque thing. So the book is Free Market, The History of an Idea. It's written by my guest, Jacob Sol, and published by Basic Books. Uh, but for now, Jake, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks, Richard. A great pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman and Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.